But know this, that in the last days, there will come difficult times. Now just take a moment and let that sink in. There will come difficult times. Why tell us this? The Bible very clearly looks ahead, and I think if you're familiar with the Word of God, you already know this. Why are we being told that it's going to get tough? Well, for starters, we need a, a real, we need a right understanding of the life that God's called us to. It's not quite the message that we're accustomed to hearing a lot, at least in our place, have your best life now. Nor is it the escapism, I think, that's a little too common. I want you to listen real carefully. I'm just going to make a brief comment. I'm not going to say a lot about this, but there is even among Bible-believing evangelical Christians a kind of escapism that says, we don't have to worry about that because we're not going to be here. And I challenge you to find that notion in Scripture. We don't have to worry about that. Paul is writing to Timothy, and he does not give him counsel. But By the way, you don't have to worry about that because you won't be here. He's writing it to Timothy in order to give Timothy what Timothy needs when the tough times come. And we've been saying all along as we've been working through Daniel, especially as we've gotten into his visions, that these things aren't here to serve as a crystal ball. They're not here to titillate our interest and our curiosity about end time disasters. They're given to reassure us that God is reigning. That's the whole message of this book. God is reigning. God is accomplishing his purposes, and really, really vital for us when tough times come, is really vital for us in the middle of them to know he has not lost control and he has not abandoned us. It'd be very tempting, I think, in Daniel's time for the Jewish people to think, has God abandoned us? What happened to God? Where is he and why are we going through all of this? So give us hope that God has got it and he's working out his plans and his purposes. When God is able to say, this is going to come, this is going to happen, it tells us God is in charge and he is working it out. And he has not abandoned us. So give us hope. It's also there to call us to repentance. But then you know the basic word, the basic piece of wisdom, the basic proverb, forewarned is what? Forearmed. Forewarned is forearmed central purpose of God telling us these things is that we might prepare ourselves for times of trouble. What does it look like to follow Jesus when it gets tough? It's easy to think, hey, come to Jesus, get a good life, fix your problems, meet your needs, great job, great marriage, everything works out. And then, boom, you hit reality sometimes, and you wonder what's going on. Jesus wants to prepare us ahead of time to faithfully follow him regardless of what comes. So we're in Daniel chapter 10. Take your Bible or take your phone or whatever it is and let's go to Daniel chapter 10. Daniel chapter 10, 11 and 12 now are the wrap up of the book. This is the final vision uh, that Daniel is given. The fourth of four visions. It starts at chapter 10 and runs through the beginning of chapter 12 and then chapter 12 ends with a kind of an epilogue to the book. If you've been with us since the start of our study of the book of Daniel, we're finally getting 
If you can go way back to the beginning, I gave you two key passages that kind of really capture the message of this book. And we're finally getting to the second of those two passages. And it's found in chapter 11. It's verse 32. Just look at the screen. Referring here to this wicked king we're going to look at during the period between the Old and New Testament. His name was Antiochus Epiphanes. He, Antiochus, will seduce with flattery, with smooth words, those who violate the covenant. But the key message of the book of Daniel, but the people who know their God shall stand firm and do what they need to do. Finally getting to that text. We shared this from the very first message, and we're hitting it. It's in chapter 11, verse 32. That's really the point that we're going to focus on as we work through this message. Those who know their God will stand firm and do what God is calling them to do under those circumstances. That's the word to us. The other key passage, just to remind you, is found back in chapter 4. And again, you can look at the screen. His dominion is an everlasting dominion. On the one side, there is God, and he is reigning. Our God reigns. If you were looking at that beginning slide, that's what this text is capturing. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are counted as nothing. We are not a threat to God. He is not intimidated by us. And he does according to his will among the hosts of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand, that is, hold it back, stop him from doing what he will do. Or say to him, what have you done? God is reigning. And then our response, the flip side of that coin, chapter 11, verse 32, you know God, you stand firm. Even when there's a powerful, oppressive Adolf Hitler reigning over you and wreaking havoc on you. If you know God, you know what to do. You stand firm and you do the things that God has called you to do. Now again, as I said to you last week in, in the third vision, in this fourth and final vision, there's a ton of stuff here. And we're not going to go into a long, detailed lecture. If I did that, chapter 11, I don't know if you've read Daniel chapter 11 anytime recently, but if you get into Daniel chapter 11, you start reading about the king of the south is going to do this, and the king of the north is going to do that, and the king of the south is going to do this, back and back and forth it goes, and after a while you're lost and wondering, what in the world is this here for? And if I got into all of this, we'd be in a long lecture on intertestamental history, kings you've never heard of, kings most of us have never heard of, you wouldn't remember them afterwards anyway. <laughs> and you can look up all this information. The question that this is going to raise in your mind when you start reading Daniel chapter 11 is, Okay, so what am I supposed to do with all this information? What's it all here for? Well, there's a couple of reasons. I'm going to use some maps this morning to, to help us understand the first of these two reasons, why this information is given to Daniel for the people of God. The first is, I want you to look at this first map. This map is showing you where Alexander's empire, Alexander the Great's empire uh, that is what he conquered. Now, I don't know how familiar you are with your world geography, but this is Europe, and this is Africa, and this is India. He basically started in Greece over here, and he works clear across Turkey, comes down into the northern part of Egypt here, and then back over here. And this will show you in just a few minutes. He goes all the way over through Pakistan. Next map will show you this superimposed on the modern world. So here you've got Greece is over here, 
you've got Turkey, Syria, Iraq, Iran, Afghanistan, Pakistan, everybody you're hearing about in the news all the time right now. Okay? So here's what all of this means. Next map will show you that after Alexander died, he died very quickly. He conquers, has his great kingdom, and he dies, and his four generals fight over it all, and it gets split up into four parts. The parts we're concerned with are called the north and the south. The north is this Seleucid Empire. Again, all those regions we're hearing about all the time right now, Iraq, Iran, Afghanistan, Pakistan. Basically, what happens, the next map will show you the southern one is northern Egypt, and it's called the Ptolemaic Empire, named after a couple of generals that fought over this and conquered it. Here's why this matters. Here's why Daniel's being told this, why it's important for the people of God. Where is Israel in all of this? Israel sits right there. And Israel is the political football between these two superpowers. And so at this point in history, the two superpowers are vying to conquer each other back and forth. And what happens when an army marches through a country? Even if it's not particularly interested in that country, it's still going to make a lot of trouble for the local people. And so part of what God is doing is he's preparing his people to know that they're going to be deeply impacted. World events are going to have a huge impact on their world and on their lives. And in the middle of all that, he wants them to understand he has not abandoned them. He hasn't forgotten about them. I just was thinking this morning about were there people reading the book of Daniel while all of this was going on and looking at chapter 11 and going, oh, this is happening right now. And they were able to say, okay, then. Not that it made it easier in terms of dealing with what suffering was imposed upon them, but at least they could know God in his grace and mercy had let them understand what was ahead of them so that as it begins to unfold, their faith is not destroyed. Second reason, as I said before, is as we get into this chapter, one of the great messages of this chapter is preparation. Tough times are coming. Get ready. Be ready. And what does it take to be ready? Well, it takes fundamentally at the heart of it that we truly know our God. And that's the primary takeaway from this this week and next week, is that we know our God. So we're going to begin now in chapter 10. Chapter 10 is the backdrop to the vision. It does, the vision doesn't really start to tell chapter 11. The, chapter 10 is describing what Daniel's up to and then describes the appearing of this great angel to him and his experience and conversation with this angel as it begins to set us up for receiving the vision. Chapter 10, verse 1 is a summary statement. In the third year of Cyrus, the king of Persia, this is Iran. Iran has conquered Iraq, and now they're in power. It's into the third year of that. And so this is about a year and a half after the previous vision that he received in chapter 9. After, or in the third year of Cyrus, a word was revealed to Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar. Apparently, Daniel repeats his name for us here because it's been for him personally probably 70-plus years. Well, it has been 70-plus years since he was originally captured and hauled off to Babylon. 
And he just wants to make sure that you understand. He's talking about the same guy way back there, probably a 15-year-old somewhere in chapter 1, who gets hauled off and renamed and given this pagan Babylonian name. Same guy, 70 years later, still serving faithfully his living God, still writing and, and conveying the word of God to his people. And the word, it says in verse 1, was true, and it was a great conflict, or perhaps it was about a great conflict. And he understood the word and had understanding of the vision. Just make a mental note of he understood. A lot of what Daniel's received, he did not understand. We've already seen that. If, you, if you're familiar with the book or been here through the studies, he didn't understand a lot of things. But part of what's key to this and part of what we learn here in chapter 10 is Daniel was seeking understanding. He was pouring himself out to God that, that somehow he could understand what was going on and what God was up to. And God in his grace and his mercy in this instance chooses to let him know. Now God doesn't always do that. I wish it were possible to say, here's a formula for how you can guarantee God will give you understanding. <laughs> but that's not what this passage teaches us. But in God's grace, sometimes he will. And he, in this case, gives Daniel some light. About a year and a half after the previous vision, as I mentioned, two things are noteworthy here that I want to call attention to in chapter 10. The first is that Daniel continues to be for us a model of spiritual depth and maturity. I just want us to look again at the quality of this man's life and let that speak to us. Nothing that Daniel is doing here is mandated. That is, it does not say, Daniel did this, therefore you do it exactly the way he did it. But he is living out before us the example of godly, deep godly living. And as we look at that, we see and we can respond, we can be challenged. I am challenged by this greatly to see a man who committed himself to such prayer and such seeking after God. Now, we're not going to read through all of this because, again, it would just take us too long and it would become a bit tedious to try to read all of it. But what we're discovering here as we read and begin to see what Daniel was doing when this vision comes to him is we see what appears to be Daniel perhaps on some kind of spiritual retreat. For sure we know that he is not in the city of Babylon where we would normally expect to find him. It says in verse 4 that he's by the Tigris River. And the Tigris River is not in or by the city. And so he's away from the city. He's an old man by this point. He's in his late 80s. And so very likely he's retired and not even serving in government anymore. If he's serving in government, he might be taking a time off. He might be on a mission for, for his government. Whatever, for whatever reason, he's away from the city. And he's engaging in three weeks of partial fasting and praying. It says in verse 2 that he was mourning, mourning for three weeks. What exactly? We don't know. We're not told why he's mourning, but it's not really hard to, to make a reasonable guess. Remember his anguish back in chapter 9 over Jerusalem and over the temple. They're both destroyed. And the people have been exiled from the land for 70 years. And he just pours his heart out to God, pleading with God, to have mercy on his city and on his house. And his great concern, if you remember from last week, his great concern 
was God's own reputation. Because when people look at Israel, and they look at Jerusalem, and they look at the temple of Yahweh, and they see it's destroyed, what they're seeing is that this Yahweh God must not amount to much. He must be a pitiful little God because he can't even protect his own house in his own city. And Daniel's heart aches for his people, for his his ancient city, for the temple of God, but also for the glory of God, the reputation of God. And so it's here's a year and a half later or so, and the people have been allowed to go back by Cyrus, and yet they're struggling. And even after a year and a half to two years, not a lot of progress, trying to get themselves reestablished in the land, the city's still in ruins, the temple's still not being rebuilt. And so the likelihood is that Daniel is simply coming before God, seeking after God to know and understand God's timing, God's purposes, and just praying his heart out for God to work and to do what he would do to rebuild and establish his glory again. Verse 3, a partial fast. Says he ate no delicacies or meat or wine. Doesn't mean that he was going without all food. Again, we're guessing, but probably a bread and water kind of a fast at this point. Also says he didn't anoint himself, which means basically he didn't take a shower, didn't shave. So he probably didn't shave anyway. He probably had a beard. Right? So it's, you're speaking to women. Didn't have. Didn't put on your makeup. He's not grooming himself in the normal way. That's why I suggest the idea of possibly a spiritual retreat. He is just spending time away from the normal routines of life, seeking after God. Verse 12 gives us a little bit of insight. Look at that one. We'll read that one. Then he said to me, fear not, Daniel. This is the angel speaking. We'll we'll come back to him in a moment. But fear not, Daniel, for from the first day, three weeks ago, that you set your heart to understand Here's where we get the idea that he wants to know what's going on. And humbled yourself before your God. That's what this fasting is about. This not going through the normal practices of hygiene and preparation for going out in public like we would do normally. He's humbling himself before God. For me, that was very helpful insight. I've honestly, I'm just going to be real candid with you and confess something. You think you're a pastor. You should know this. In fact, you're an old pastor. You should have known this a long time ago. But I've really, I've really wrestled with fasting in my life. In other words, understanding what's the point. If, if, I, if I deprive myself and, and feel miserable, will God give me more brownie points and answer my prayer better than if I don't? And that just hasn't made any sense to me, honestly. I just didn't like the notion that I get more brownie points if I inflict pain on myself. But in looking at what this says here, I think it's giving us a good insight. Daniel was humbling himself before God. I think that's the right perspective on what fasting would be for. It's just a way of saying, okay, God, I'm just going to humble myself before you, forego the normal practices and even the normal eating, and, and I'm going to just be before you and to allow and to seek after you and allow you to speak into my heart, and I'm humbled. After three weeks of this, this terrifying appearing of an angel, beginning in verse 5. Now, a picture is worth a thousand words, so I put a picture on the screen for you. Especially I need help with a thousand words so these sermons don't get any longer than they already are. 
That's the best I could find. And if I blew it up any bigger, it would even get blurrier. So I just kind of tried to make it possible for you to get a visual on what this guy looked like. Daniel's the only one who could see him. Those who were with Daniel knew something was going on, and they were so terrified that it says they ran and hid. But they couldn't see anything. Daniel, we're told, just goes pale white. All the strength in his body just flows out, falls, flows, just goes away. I mean, not just knees, everything. Loses complete strength. And then it says he passes out and falls on his face. That's, that's the effect of this amazing appearance, of this amazing figure. What happens out, Daniel's laying there flat on his face, passed out cold, and he reaches down and picks him up on his hands and knees. And it says Daniel's on his hands and knees, and he's trembling there just kind of shake and he's overwhelmed by what's going on here verse 11 look at verse 11 and he said to me oh daniel man greatly loved that's a word that you you long to to think of yes of course i don't even you know i don't want to misspeak here so just I, i i trust you to understand what i'm getting of course god loves with infinite and perfect love but there's something special about Daniel to the heart of God because of his faithful, godly, uncompromising life for these many, many years. The Hebrew literally means treasured or precious. Precious not in the sense of sweet, but precious in the sense of valuable. A man of value or preciousness. And so he tells Daniel, don't be afraid. Stand up. And so Daniel's kind of shaking in his boots, you know, and he stands up and he's still shaking. And he basically, he can't even talk. He can hardly breathe, it says. So you say, how can I even talk to you? I can hardly breathe. And at this point, a second angel, what appears to be a second angel, touches his lips. And he is given strength so that he can begin to even talk. And again, a second time in verse 19, he is called a man greatly loved and not to be afraid and he's given more strength and so he's able to begin to converse and he says okay uh, you know the, the angel is telling him I have come to give you understanding that's what you were asking for I have come to give you that understanding and so that's the first thing noteworthy in chapter 10 I wanted to point out to us just the model of deep godliness great maturity great faithfulness. Here's a man so committed to God who's taking this time to seek his face, to give up the normal, the normal foods and the normal grooming just to be before God. A spiritual retreat is a good thing to do. We can't always do it, of course. We have schedules and responsibilities, but when it's possible, but even in the daily routines of life, to take time with God. And you can fast in the daily routines of life as well. And you can do a partial fast. Do, it, do this. Hey, I won't have any chocolate for a month or a week or whatever it is. You can, you can dedicate yourself to give up something as a way of humbling yourself before God and seeking Him in very focused and earnest prayer that, you would, that He would do the work that you are seeking for him to do. You know what James says to us? You do not have because you do not ask. 
And that is one of the most convicting words in all the word of God about prayer to me personally. Because I know it's easy to have a good heart for people and a good heart for needs and a good heart for Crossroads Fellowship and a good heart for India, the ministry we have there, and all those things and all those people we love, but to not really pray. And so it's a challenge in his guidelines. Second noteworthy thing in chapter 10 here is what I'm going to call what in the world is going on here. Notice what the angel tells him in verse 13. The prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me 21 days, but Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me, for I was left there with the king of Persia. What in the world is he talking about? Later on in verse 20, but now I will return to fight against the prince of Persia. When I go out, behold, the prince of Greece will come. But I will tell you what is inscribed in the book of truth, that there is none who contends by my side against these except Michael, your prince, the prince of Israel. And as for me, in the year, first year of Darius the Mede, I stood up in, to confirm and to strengthen him. That is Michael. This angel stood up to confirm Michael. What we're being given a glimpse at here is something is going on in the angelic and demonic realms. Something we don't see, something we don't experience directly ourselves. One of the few hints in Scripture that there are high-ranking demons assigned to nations. He refers to the prince of, of the kingdom of Persia. Satan has assigned a high-ranking and powerful demon to that country. And that's what's very fascinating. You, you, you want an answer here? Well, you help me. Let's fast for three weeks and pray. God sends this angel to answer Daniel, and for three weeks he is held up in a fight with the demon over Persia. My first question is, why hasn't God just flicked that bugger off? How can, how can that happen? Well, apparently that can happen the same way it happens in human affairs. God permits evil people to do what they do and to wreak havoc just as Antiochus Epiphanes will wreak havoc on his own people. And so apparently God is permitting this kind of thing, even in the angelic and demonic realms, for his reasons and for his purposes. And I would not pretend to know and understand all of his reasons and purposes. In Ephesians chapter 2, Satan is called the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. We know that. We know Satan is working. We know that, that there are demons in the world, and we think of that in a very more personal, spiritual struggle kind of a way. That there is temptation, and there is sometimes demon possession or demon oppression, or there is special efforts made against us to really engage against us to get us off track in our lives. We know that. But maybe we haven't often thought about what we see in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12, where we're told this is the spiritual warfare passage, the armor of God passage where it says, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers. Notice that. Against the authorities. There's rank and authority, levels among the demons, just as there are among the angels. 
we wrestle against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. And we're told, apparently, as we see in Daniel, that Satan has assigned some of those to nations and that there is conflict going on at that level. And sometimes even those conflicts impinge on angels doing the work they're sent to do here on the earth. There is a view being taught today. I want to spend a moment just touching on it. It's called strategic level spiritual warfare. First thing I want to say to you this morning, spiritual warfare is not a special kind of conflict in the Christian life. It happens once in a while when you happen to encounter a demon. Spiritual warfare is another term for the Christian life. Read Ephesians chapter 6. Read what we just touched on there, verse 12. We wrestle not with human opponents. We wrestle with these cosmic, these demonic opponents. And therefore, put on the whole armor of God. That's every day. When you wake up in the morning, you're at spiritual warfare. When you go to work, you're at spiritual warfare. We're always at spiritual warfare. And unfortunately, a mindset is developed among us that spiritual warfare happens when we're having a especially powerful time of temptation or a especially powerful time of doubting God or a especially powerful time of feeling like demonic power is around us. That's not biblical. But then part of what develops out of this kind of teaching in Scripture, this kind of passage in Scripture, is this idea of strategic-level spiritual warfare. The idea is that there are these demonic powers over people groups or over nations or over regions or over territories, and that absolutely appears to be the case from what we see here. And so the idea of strategic level spiritual warfare is we have to engage in a particular kind of warfare to, to battle against these forces over regions or territories, and we have to break that stronghold or that bondage before the gospel can really bear its influence in that place. And it requires special techniques. We've got to identify the demon's rank and name. We've got to call the demons out once we know their name. We use their name to call them out by name. We have to engage in special prayers to bind them special trips, if we think there's uh, some kind of spiritual bondage over the area where we go in Nagaland, then we have to go there physically. We have to engage in a prayer walk, and we have to engage in this strategic level kind of prayer in order to break that bondage so the gospel can again have its freedom in that place. Now listen carefully. Do territorial uh, spirits exist? Yes. That's what Daniel 10 seems to be teaching us pretty clearly. What are we supposed to do about territorial spirits? One word, nothing. It's not our fight. There's nothing here in this text that told Daniel to do anything. There's nothing in this text telling you and me to do anything. There's nothing anywhere in any text telling us to do anything. What we're told is to put on the full armor of God, which is truth and righteousness and the word of God and those Uh, pieces of armor that we need every day in our lives, and then we are to do what with the flaming arrows of the devil or the, the, the deceitful tricks of the devil? What are we supposed to do? Stand firm. That's what we're supposed to do. 
And so don't try to read into this something beyond what it tells us. It's giving us a glimpse that something else is going on at a level we don't know about much, but it's not our fight. And it's not something that we concern ourselves with. We concern ourselves with what we're clearly taught to do. And so there we are, Daniel chapter 10. Daniel is seeking after God, mourning and fasting for three weeks, praying his heart out. And this angel comes, and this angel tells him about this this conflict that took place before he could get there. But now he's here, and he has a word from God for Daniel. And that brings us to the vision in chapter 11, the fourth of Daniel's four visions. This is basically covering the same ground as the second vision back in chapter 8. And I don't think today, I think I'm going to pass over just reviewing that vision this morning for the sake of our time. But this vision starts with a very brief summary of what we've been seeing all the way through the book of Daniel. From, from that moment, there's going to be four more Persian kings, and then Alexander's going to come, and then Alexander's realm is going to get split up, and then we start reading about these north and south kings that start vying with each other. Just a few things I want you to note. We're not going to read through all of this. As I said, I'm not going to give you a long history lesson. It's too involved. It would take a week of college-level course courses to give you all this history that's going on here. And that's not necessary for us to really get what God wants to say to us this morning. But remember this. Israel is stuck right in the middle, and this is coming right at them, and this is going to make life rough for them. If you'll notice in verse 10, it says, His son shall wage, this is chapter 11 now, 11 verse 10. His son shall wage war and assemble a multitude of great forces, which shall keep coming and overflow and pass through. See that pass through part of your land. And it's going to get tough, as we've said, on Israel. There's some other notes that I want you to see. Verse 14. Sometimes God's people want to take things into their own hands, and they want to rise up. And there are what you could call freedom fighters who want to throw off this foreign oppression. In verse 14, they're going to try it at one point. The violent among your own people shall lift themselves up in order to fulfill the vision, but they shall fail. Don't be thrown off by that. Don't think God has failed. Don't think his plans and purposes have failed. Another important note that will come up time and time again is that it is for the appointed time, and we'll see that in a few moments. But now drop down to verse 21, because verse 21, all of this is leading up to this king that I've already identified as Antiochus Epiphanes, Antiochus IV. The word Epiphanes means manifestation. And on, on coins that he had minted, he actually added the word God. Antiochus, manifestation of God. Very humble man. Verse 21 is where we are finally coming to this guy. And remember, what we're talking about here is the Adolf Hitler of this period of time, in between the Testaments. In his place shall arise a contemptible person. The contemptible person here is Antiochus Epiphanes. So, back and forth between the south and the north, and in his place, some the previous guy's place, is going to arise this contemptible person to whom royal majesty has not been given. It was not his right to be king. He was actually the uncle 
of the man who was supposed to be king. So he was royal, but he was not in line next to be king. But for a series of circumstances, which we won't take the time for this morning, he is appointed for a time, kind of like a, a, a regent for a time, and during that time, he is able to seize power and take the kingdom for himself. And so he begins to go to battle. What he wants, he is this madman, just like Hitler wanted to conquer all of Europe. So this madman wants to conquer Egypt. He's going to go after it. He wants the power. He wants everything. And he's successful the first time he goes after Egypt. If we drop down to verse 27, notice in the middle it says, and this is talking about two kings, one from the south, and he wants to be king of the south. He's an Egyptian, and he wants to be the king of Egypt. And so he enters into an alliance with, with Epiphanes, Antiochus. And look, notice what it says, they shall speak lies at the same table. In other words, they are just using each other to, to try to get their, gain their own ends. But on his way back, on this first campaign into Egypt, there's some success for Antiochus. But on his way back north, verse 28, he shall return to his land with great wealth, but his heart shall be set against the holy of Israel. For some reason, just like Adolf Hitler this irrational and insane hatred for the Jews and for their religion. What we know from the, uh, from the book of Maccabees, we know from the history of the time, that as he was going back, he encounters this insurgency that we read about. Remember that some of the violent among your people will try to, to uh, affect their own freedom, but, they won't, but they'll fail. He encounters this rebellion. And in his wrath, he slaughters 80,000 people. And he loots the temple in Jerusalem that has been rebuilt. And he does it with the help of a wicked priest of Israel. And in verse 29 says, at the appointed time. You see, that's a very clear and a very crucial note for the people of God and for you and me to remember and hear at the appointed time. Who appoints the time? Well, God, of course. God is working out his plans and his purposes. Now Antiochus, some time later, is going to make his second effort to conquer, fully conquer Egypt. And so verse 29, at the appointed time he shall return and come into the south. But it shall not be this time as it was before. He won't be successful this time. For ships of Kittim, and that refers to the Romans, shall come against him. He shall be afraid and withdraw. Basically what happens is Egypt appeals to Rome. Rome sends their fleet. They meet with Antiochus. The general or the admiral of this fleet, <coughs> excuse me, draws a circle in the sand around Antiochus and says, get out or suffer the consequences and I need your decision before you step outside of this circle. Well, he wisely decides he better not take on Rome at this point. But notice, and this is where it gets real personal and real ugly for Israel and where it begins to speak to being faithful or to standing firm in times of trouble. As he leaves Egypt, it says he shall turn back and be enraged. He is afraid. 
is teaching for the Jews. And if he goes back to Israel, he decides that they're going to pay the price. So he takes action against the Holy Covenant. He shall turn back and pay attention to those who forsake the Holy Covenant. First thing he does is he sends a man named Apollon, uh, Ap, Apollonius, excuse me, Apollonius in. He's, he's kind of the head of his, his mercenaries, and he's, he's, he's the collector of tribute. And he sends this man into Jerusalem to collect tribute. But he's, he's lying and deceiving them because he has no intention to come peacefully. As soon as it is the Sabbath day, he goes to slaughter them. And he goes straight back on to slaughter. But he does re reward the apostate Jews under the leadership of this wicked priest. He begins to re refuse or, or, or suppress all practice of their faith. He outlaws the practice of circumcision. He makes it illegal to have a copy of the scriptures to offer the sacrifices or to celebrate the feast days. And he begins to impose his own imperial pagan worship on the Jews. And as you know, I'm sure you've all heard of the abomination of desolation. That is where this comes. Verse 31, forces from him shall appear and profane the temple and fortress and shall take away the regular burnt offering and they shall set up the abomination that makes desolate makes the temple, the house of God, desolate. The abomination is an altar to Zeus. The sacrifices are offered on one occasion, including the offering of pigs on the altar, not before God. And so we come finally to verse 32, where this begins to speak to us. He shall seduce, verse 32 says, with flattery or quite literally smooth words or smooth talk, those who violate the covenant. What does that mean, violate the covenant? These are Jewish people. These are the people of God who are willing to be, to break their covenant with God. They're willing to turn their back on what they're supposed to be doing in their love and their faithfulness and their commitment to God. In the face of this power and this oppression, they are going to collapse, they're going to cave, and they're going to give in. And he's going to seduce them with offers of position, offers of power and influence, offers of wealth, and those who are already have some influence and some power, like this priest, they're going to be offered more in exchange for going along with we're presented with a choice to come over to the dark side <laughs> or pay the price, what will we do? See, that's the question for us now. That's the takeaway for us. This is being given here to speak to us. There's a godly way to respond to these things when they come. And there's an ungodly way to respond. Where are we in all of this? I mean, obviously, what, what, would, what would motivate us to be seduced, to give in? Well, fear would be an obvious one. I mean, give in or die. 
give in or being thrown in prison, give in or be tortured, tormented. That'd be one obvious reason. But I think for us in particular, because we're not faced currently at least with any kind of real physical suffering or harm, the seduction that we would face comes, I would contend, more from ignorance than from fear. And by ignorance, what I mean is this. Simply, we don't really know and understand the difference between God's point of view and the point of view of the culture to which we belong. Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, you know them well. Verse 1 is about giving our bodies completely to God simply because God doesn't really have you until he's got your body. You can fool yourself into thinking he does, but you're really living out your life physically as you please and as you choose. But then verse 2 says, and do not be conformed to this world. Don't be squeezed into the mold of this world, but be what? Transformed. That's the word from which we get the word metamorphosis. That's the caterpillar becoming a butterfly. Be transformed. Become something different than what you were. And how does that happen? It happens by the renewing of your mind. You're going to have to know something in order to stand firm. You're going to have to know something. You're going to have to have a new way of thinking and a new point of view and a new understanding if we're going to face challenges when they come and we're going to stand firm and do what needs to be done. Otherwise, I mean, it, it breaks our hearts. I'm sure many of you have experienced this, perhaps in your own family or circle of friends. It just breaks our heart as pastors when we see people who otherwise seem to be good Christians and seem on some level to love the Lord, and yet they just embrace the world without even seeming to know there's a difference. That can only mean that their mind has not been renewed. They do not really know the word of God as they should know it. And so that they would understand that there's a difference. Many churches, it's something of history, it's an important lesson for us. Many churches in Germany were seduced by Adolf Hitler. Because when Adolf Hitler first began to rise to power in Germany, he was not the monster we, knew, we came to know him to be. He was a politician. He was a leader who was bringing Germany hope. Germany had been devastated and humiliated by World War I, and their economy was finally getting back on its feet, and Hitler seemed to have programs that were working and offering them some national pride again. And there came a point at which the church should have stood up and said, this is wrong, this is evil, but they capitulated in mass. How do you do that when supposedly you've got the word of God and you follow Jesus? That can only be because you don't really have the word of God and you don't really know and understand. The Antichrist, the real Antichrist, when he appears, is not going to appear as a monster. He's going to appear as a savior. Finally, we've got a world leader who can fix this mess, can solve the Middle East problems, and can solve terrorism can solve the economic problems of our world. What's the most basic and fundamental issue here? 
verse 32, that the people who know their God. That's the fundamental issue here, knowing God. In the time of Antiochus, there were a group of, there was a, there was a priest and his family. Someone representing Antiochus, representing the government, came to their town and was commanding them to offer the sacrifices, and this priest finally said no. And they stood up. Three of his sons, uh, who we know now as the Maccabees, and the word Maccabee, Maccabeus, means hammer. They stood up, they fought back, and they eventually won their freedom. And it was one of these sons who rededicated the temple in what still today is celebrated as Hanukkah. They knew their God and they would not go along with it. They understood the difference. Knowing God, not just knowing about him, not just naming all his attributes. We can, we can give a list of God is infinite and he is um, um, eternal and he has all power and all knowledge and he is love and he is holy and, and on we can name all his attributes because we learn them in some Bible study. We can know these things and still not know him. In light of what we're reading here in Daniel chapter 11, nothing is more crucial for us than that we truly know God. I shared something with you. I started the series of Daniel by reading a little story from J.I. Packer's book, Knowing God. And it bears repeating, so let me just read it again for you. It'll be on the screen so you can absorb it a little more fully. I walked in the sunshine with a scholar who had effectively forfeited his prospects of academic advancement by clashing with church dignitaries over the gospel of grace. But it doesn't matter, he said at length, for I have known God and his word. The remark was a mere parenthesis, a passing comment on something I had said, but it struck me and set me thinking. And he goes on, Packer goes on to describe how what was really striking to him was the man wasn't boasting and he wasn't trying to make any, he wasn't sounding pious or anything. He just said it in a kind of ordinary, matter-of-fact, natural way. And Packer began to say, how many, how many of us as Christians would, would just naturally and as a matter of course without any kind of bravado or boasting or anything just be able to say we know God. It would be the natural thing for us. He also wonders how many of us would be able to handle our disappointments and our heartbreaks and our times of trouble confidently talking about in Daniel isn't just a kind of a, you know, I lost my job, which is bad enough. This is an Adolf Hitler coming down on your town. But those who know God stand firm and do what needs to be done. And God is calling us to, to know him. That's at the heart of this. That's what we really most urgently need. Knowing God starts by having a real relationship with him through his son, Jesus. Now, it sounds pretty obvious and pretty basic to many of you, 
must ask ourselves seriously when we think about the condition of the church in America, and I'm using that term now for broadly for everybody, ask ourselves about the condition of the church in America. We must ask ourselves how many meals are real, living relationships that we take with God. Jesus said, I'm the way, I'm the truth, I'm the life. The only way to the Father is through me. 2 Corinthians, I love this statement. It's, it's kind of a long, little bit complicated statement. But once you get it, it's really glorious. Look at this. God, verse 6 on the screen, has shown in our hearts, he's turned on the light inside of us to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God. In other words, we now know God in his glory. Where? By looking how God does this. That's what it means when it says the gospel is the power of God for salvation. As people hear the word about Jesus, God turns on the light in their hearts. So when they're hearing about Jesus, they're seeing Jesus coming to know God and have a real and living relationship with Him. So the first thing we're talking about, those who know God will stand firm. The first thing we're talking about, not you're really religious you have a real living relationship with Christ. We're talking about the reality of this relationship. But then the second thing we're talking about is the depth of this relationship. Because this relationship, even if you do know Jesus, doesn't just kind of fall on you by osmosis. Like any relationship, this relationship must grow and it must be fostered, it must be developed. And Christians can know Christ and be in relationship with God, but not be growing to know God more fully. And I think for many of us, that's the heart, the burden of my heart this morning. That tough times come, do we know God? So that we will be able to stand firm. I'm thinking marriage, those of you that are married, those of you that want to be married, those of you that maybe are not married, but you can imagine it. There are, there are colleges all over in every city in this country where a man and woman who are married to each other are living separate lives on Saturday nights. in relationship, but not really in relationship, right? And so, to be in relationship with God, how, how does any relationship flourish? It's pretty simple. This isn't rocket science. You spend time together. And you communicate with Share life together. That's how friendships work. That's how boys and girls fall in love. And that's how husbands and wives stay in love and grow to know each other deeply. And that's how children of God come to know their Father. That 
heaven with us. He's in his return. So that the relationship is strained. Well, we could someday do a series on knowing God because it is so crucial to our life. But take the challenge. And if you want a starting point, spend time with him every day. Just get over worrying about formalities and talk to him. Let he do the work in your heart. And then listen. How do you do that? Well, he spoke. He's got, he's got a big fat book where he spoke to us. So spend time in it as we do in this room. Well, I need to quickly touch a couple more things here. Let me do it. Verse 33, and the wise among the people shall make many understand. Who are the wise? I wish I could spend more time with this, but let me just say it this way. Those whose minds, uh, those who are transformed by the renewing of their mind, those are the wise. They are the ones who are instructing many. If you take 2 Timothy chapter 3, the verse I started with, know this. In the last days, there will come difficult times. Just read through that and see what Paul tells Timothy to do. He tells him to keep himself in the scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation. To help you to know God's truth. Very profitable, he goes on to say, that God breathed in a prophet of his work, teaching, reproof, correction, training in righteousness, that the person of God may be complete and equipped for every good work. Daniel is an example of the wise. Well, we finish with this thought. Knowing God and being wise will not spare us from all trouble. Just read with me verse 33. Though for some days they, the wise, shall stumble by sword and flame, by captivity and plunder. When they stumble, they shall receive a little help. And many shall join themselves to them with flattery. When the Maccabees started to gain power... Many of the insincere, those who had violated the covenant, began to take their side. And some of the wise shall stumble so that they may be refined, purified, and made right until the time of the end, for it awaits God a faithful people. There will be hard times even for the godly and for the wise. Why? That they may be refined, purified, and made right. You know the trials. Trying of your faith purifies us and freshens us. So know this. The last days, there will be difficult times. What do we do? 